0: Five through ten is what we're going to be looking at. Uh, like I said, I don't know that we'll get through all of it. It's a pretty lengthy passage, but uh, but we may. Let's read it. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their actions... They had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. All right, so Jonah has shown up to Nineveh. That's what we covered last uh, two weeks ago. He's shown up to Nineveh. It's a, a three-day journey. We, we see that uh, very likely what that meant was it would have taken him three days to, to preach to the entire uh, city, and... The the end of the first day, verse verse four tells us, um, he just got to the end of the first day preaching his message, and verse five tells us that the people repent. They're done. Preachers love when this happens. I mean, if, if, if I hear that, you know, I preached a sermon and somebody changed because of the sermon, that excites me. Poor Jonah didn't excite him. He was not pleased. Uh, Jonah apparently is a very effective preacher. Now, I don't know if if it's so much what he preaches, because as we talked about, this this the the record what we have recorded as his sermon is just one sentence. Uh, maybe he said more. This is just the gist of it. But this is the second time his words were effective with pagans. Remember the first time. Was with the the sailors He told them what to do explained some things to them and and they got it and they followed Yahweh when they saw what God could do We discussed what, what exactly that meant that they followed Yahweh and made sacrifices and that kind of thing But regardless he was effective in preaching to those pagans. He was effective in preaching to these pagans now, let's let's be honest it just like today It doesn't matter how eloquent I am. It doesn't matter how wonderfully flowery my uh, sermons are or how in-depth I go and explain uh, Greek participles to you and all this other stuff. That is not what changes people's hearts. It's the Word of God. Uh, Whether you are the best-educated preacher at the largest church in the country or the least educated at some rural church speaking to ten people... those two things, those two extremes don't matter provided they're preaching the Word of God because it's the Word of God that changes hearts. So we, we see with Jonah, it was him telling people of God, telling him, uh, him telling people about God, the God that he served, explaining God to them because of the Scripture that he knew that changed them. And Jonah should have been excited about that. But we don't see excitement from Jonah. Uh, I get uh, picked on sometimes. Because I'm not the most uh, emotional person. I don't emote, right, Marsha? Yeah, I don't emote. It's difficult for me to... I'm just not. Now at a, a foot, I'm getting better. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, a compliment. Uh, I, I, I am getting better. I, I do pretty well at a football game. But beyond that, I don't... I'm just not an emotional person. Jonah has me beat in the lack of emotion department by like a million miles the guy just never gets excited about what's going on he, he, he sleeps through a storm in the boat he you know that there the sailors are casting lots what are we going to do oh we're going to die and jonah's like throw me over i'm the problem throw me over he, he's got this message of repentance to preach that is Probably he he probably knew well he did know if we you know if you read ahead a little bit he, he knew what God was gonna do if the people repented. He knew the power of the message and I, I just I envision him going through the town saying In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. Now maybe he actually did emote at this point. Maybe that message was so gleeful for him. Maybe he skipped through Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. and Maybe, maybe he was excited about that. Loved that part of it. Because that's kind of his nature. I, I don't know. But uh, beyond that, the guy just didn't. He didn't get excited. 150,000 people repent at his message. And he could care less. As a matter of fact, he gets mad about it. We'll find out. So the, the, the people repent. Uh, they, they, they fast, it says in verse 5. They, they put on sackcloth. These are outward signs of repentance, of mourning. We see that over and over in the Old Testament that they would uh, do that. Um, the, the Bible says, the words the Bible uses are that they believed, they declared, and they put on. Those are the verbs. Uh, so with believing we see an inward response to the message that they heard with declaring you you hear them articulate what they believe and then when they put on sackcloth we see this outward expression of of uh, of the repentance that has occurred we we should see similar things in our lives when we come to Christ we believe it's inward we we express it' uh, We confess with our mouths. We believe in our heart and we confess with our mouths. And then outwardly our lives should change. And that's what we see here with them. And as I said earlier, repentance occurred on the first day of three days. It looks kind of like he had planned to preach three days. Three days through the city. Well, he just got through the first day and it took over by itself. The message spread among the people. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be demolished. Now, let's look at their belief here for just a second and what this probably meant. We don't want to overdo it. Uh, this was probably not salvation as we understand it. Well, obviously it wasn't salvation as we understand it because he wasn't preaching Jesus. Uh, it wasn't salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, obviously. But but even, even more so, it wasn't salvation through faith In God and his coming Messiah As the Old Testament experienced The Old Testament people experienced salvation They had faith in God What the people believed was What Jonah's God said would happen That's what they believed Jonah gave this message And the people believed it And that's good that they believed it If we look at it in the Hebrew We find that Jonah actually only mentioned Elohim He didn't mention Yahweh Now why is that a big deal. Well, Yahweh was the covenant name for Israel, for God. Very specific. If you spoke of Yahweh, you knew you were talking about this one particular God. But if you spoke of Elohim, that was a fairly common name for gods at the time. As a matter of fact, the word is plural. Elohim. Uh, It it, it means gods. It's this uh, idea of the all-encompassing, but the greatest God. It's used if you've ever heard of, uh, if you've ever studied the, the Old Testament sources, and, and this, you know, some of you are already going, but, you know, bear with me for just a second. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, they go back and forth talking about God using either Yahweh or Elohim or, uh, let's see, and then there's JEP, He the priestly generative mystic. That's okay. Those don't matter. Uh, they use either yahweh jehovah That's the j or elohim and they go back and forth talking about the same god using these names because at times They are just like our gospels matthew mark luke and john are directed at different segments of society at the time So they tell different aspects of jesus jesus from a different angle use of elohim versus yahweh Speaks of god the same god from a different angle so Jonah doesn't show up and say, Yahweh, the one God, the true God, the great I am is going to destroy you. He says, Elohim, the, the chief God, you know, like y'all have a chief God, Ninevites, the chief God, he's going to destroy you. So he doesn't come in with this explanation of who he's. He's not trying to make uh faithful Jews out of them, uh proselytes out of them. He only mentions Elohim. Now, it is possible that there are some true conversions to Yahweh. You've got to assume that they asked some questions. Some people asked some questions. So I think it's safe to assume that there were some some true conversions to Judaism, to the one true God, but we just don't have any record of it. What we have is they believed the message. They believed that this Elohim of whom Jonah spoke could destroy them and would destroy them especially given everything that had gone on. Remember I talked about the famines that they had had in the last 50 years, the solar eclipse and the destruction of their town. So this this guy shows up and says, Hey, y'all, the chief God is going to destroy you in 40 days. Folks, we're done. We are going to do whatever we can to turn aside the wrath of this God, this chief God that Jonah is talking about. So we, we don't want to create too much put too much here on the belief, but let's also go to what Jesus said in the New Testament that uh, it would be better for the folks of Nineveh than it would be for the ones he talked to in that day because they believed the message of Jonah. Still, that doesn't quite get us to conversion because he's talking about people that didn't believe him at all didn't believe his message, didn't believe who he was, didn't even believe the signs that he did. Remember the the, the folks that were against him when they saw Jesus do these miracles said, oh, he's, he's doing the miracles from the devil. The devil made him do those. They didn't believe anything about him. So even the Ninevites believed the message, at least believed that God would do what he said. Jesus preached the kingdom, preached judgment, and they didn't believe that message at all. So... So we can we can probably say that there may have been some conversions to Yahweh, but we don't want to like I said we don't want to go too far with that. But what they did do was believe the message of the prophet. This guy from another country. Remember a few weeks ago I made the analogy that somebody from uh, uh, Iraq wa- uh, from Al Qaeda or ISIS now walks through the city, uh, walks through New York City, and says in 40 days Allah will destroy this city what would the response be? Repentance? Turning to Allah? No. He gone. I mean, (laughs) that dude's out of here if if that's the message he preaches. That's similar, if not a one-to-one correlation, that's similar to Jonah walking through the streets of Nineveh saying that same thing. So it's a huge miracle that these people turned. Limited message from an unknown prophet, from an enemy country, and these people believe the message and repent. That's pretty cool. Uh, verse 6 tells us the king repents. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is a bottom up revival, y'all. This is the way revivals always happen. Boy, it really sounds like I'm talking about politics a lot lately. Uh, well, okay. Uh, governments don't bring revival. I don't care. Who we put in office. I don't care if Billy Graham had run for president in the 70s and been elected president and he passed all the laws that all the evangelicals wanted passed. That would not have brought revival. Only the Spirit of God brings revival. Only the message of salvation brings revival. Revival happens. Study every revival in history. And I've not, but I know some great men who have. Every one of them started with normal, regular people. Very few started with actual preachers. Most of them started with just regular folks. The one that comes to mind off the top of my head is the Haystack Revival. I'm not sure. I believe it brought about, and Dr. Buckley is much better at history than I am, so I'm going to defer to him. Was that the Second Great Awakening or First Great that started with the Haystack Revival? college students, a handful of college students, three or four, were going to a prayer meeting, couldn't make it because of the rain, stopped to pray literally under a haystack. And that began a revival. Wasn't a great preacher. Wasn't wasn't the government. Wasn't a national day of prayer. Wasn't a king sitting in ashes and putting on sackcloth. Revivals start from the bottom up. And look at the king. He, he comes down off of his throne. He, he, he got up and he came down. He, he left his royal position of authority and made himself just like his people. Oh my goodness. If we could get governmental leaders that would repent in such a manner to get off of their royal <clears throat> thrones and come and be a part of the people, the church. And experience revival that way. Our country would see some incredible things. Until that happens, we slog on. Jonah was likely received in the court. The way the way it tells us that, uh, that when, when he heard about this foreigner preaching this message, it was very likely he was invited in. The king lowers himself in submission. And that was a necessary act of repentance. It's necessary for everybody. But it was incredibly symbolic for the king to do this, for his nobles to do this. Uh, when we find ourselves caught, we humble ourselves in repentance. Verse seven tells us that uh, the revival becomes government policy. We've had flickers of that in our U.S. history. Occasionally, you'll 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 look back in the 1800s and you'll you'll see. Just glimpses of our government trying to catch a part of the revival, and and you'll see uh, presidents using language that that uh, uh, hints of the need for a revival. Lincoln is one who comes to mind uh, most vividly for me, and the things that he called for and prayed for. But this time, government really—I mean, it, revival really becomes government policy. He he approves of what is already going on in in the. Uh, among the people. It, it's almost like he's, he hears about it and says, well, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Now, it's not. I, I don't think this is politics as usual. I don't think he is um, in any way uh catering to the, the religious folks of the day in order to get their votes. I, I think that this is truly him in repentance. He's hearing what the people have done and he's saying they are exactly right. We are going to. Not only take part in this, but we're going to make this our policy that we are going to be a people who have who, who repent of what we have done. This inclusion of livestock is is not unheard of. Well, for the for the Assyrians specifically, it wasn't unheard of for the Persians, but not the, the Assyrians either. And what it really tells us is this: <clears throat> excuse me, this, this call to repentance, this call for revival stretches out of the city into the rural suburbs. There would have been a city probably behind a wall, but the flocks and the shepherds and all that stuff would have been outside the city, and and this was not just here in town y'all are going to do this, but this is going to be everybody. If you are within the jurisdiction of Nineveh, you will do uh, you will take part in this public repentance. What this was was proof of their sincerity, proof of the king's sincerity, but proof of the people's sincerity. They were truly repenting. Don't know if they knew exactly what they were repenting from or to whom they were repenting, but they were repenting. There was a real change of heart that occurred in the city of Nineveh. Verse 8, the king uh, commands prayer. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. We talked about that. Everyone must call out earnestly to God. That there, this this prayer was very likely admission of guilt, and then also begging for mercy, because that's that's they're trying to get out of the deal. I mean, we're going to be destroyed in forty days. I wonder how God had planned to do it. I mean, I I, I think of these things, maybe y'all don't. But locusts, fire. Uh, Jonah was expecting a show. Again, I'm giving away the fourth chapter but he was expecting something he could see and and he, I just I'm curious. I wonder what the people expected let me let me put it that way. what did they think when they heard 40 days and you'll be destroyed another kingdom coming in, another uh, a country coming in and, and killing them defeating them I, I, I don't know. it wasn't pretty whatever they thought of because immediately they admit their guilt and they beg for mercy. And he, the king commands change. Pray and change. Sounds like a pretty good sermon right there, right? Confess, turn around, repent. That's what he commands them to do. He's not allowing mere lip service. How many of us have, have heard, tends to be government officials, but also anybody in the spotlight, anybody who's a celebrity, whether it's governmental, Hollywood, whatever, when they get caught, their apology sounds a lot like they were sorry they got caught. Not so much sorry about what they did. The king is not allowing this. Uh, this is not just lip service, oh, I'm going to say what, what sounds good. Oh, maybe we can fool God. You know, we'll say, oh, we're sorry, God. No. He says not just prayer, but but change. True repentance means actual change. That's why we as Christians, we judgmental Christians, when we hear of someone who has trusted Christ, prayed a prayer, gotten baptized, but we see nothing in their life that was different, that is different now versus their life prior to their conversion, we wonder about their conversion. Well, that's very biblical that we would wonder about their conversion. We as Christians are called to hold each other accountable. So when someone says, I'm a Christian, then we are supposed to say, well, you ain't acting like it. That is our job. Uh, Galatians, that's one of the best places to go and, and learn about that. As a matter of fact, I, I think Galatians will be the next chapter we, we go, I mean, the next book we go over on Sunday night. It's a, I, I, I'm a big fan of Galatians. Uh, true repentance means you change. Now, it's not overnight. We don't expect the, the drug addict. To never pick up another drug. We, we expect them to get better. We expect it to be more difficult than for them to go back. We expect potty mouths to, to slip on occasion. We, we, we Because we're still sinners. We're never going to be perfect. But if we see no evidence of change. We see no evidence of, of conviction when they do sin. Here's my problem with a number of things... I've talked about this. I don't know if I've talked about it here or not. I hide my sins for a reason. And it's not just because I might lose my job. It's because I know what I'm not supposed to do. And I don't want other people to know that I'm doing what I'm not supposed to do. I know those things are sins. So I don't want to brag about them. I wonder about people who claim to be Christian, but then openly, defiantly brag about the sins that they are committing. Well, they'll say they're not sins. They'll say, for example, homosexuality, well, that's not what the Bible meant. Well, you can you can say that all you want, but the Bible clearly calls it a sin. Therefore, you're bragging about what you're doing that's sinful. You have, you're, you're, you're trying to change the Word of God. As Christians, this is a great message for a pastor to give, as Christians, we're supposed to hide our sins. As Christians, we're supposed to be ashamed of our sin. And if we're not, there's a problem. There's a problem with our repentance if we're not ashamed of our sinfulness. Adam and Eve, why did you hide? We were ashamed. They knew that what they had done was wrong. They knew that where they were now was in a sinful state and they were ashamed of what they were, what they had done, so they hid it. So, actual change. Uh, preachers... I put on here usually like when they see actual change in people too I mean one of the best things you can tell me and and Jonah you know He didn't like it that the people changed because of his message But one of the best things you can tell me is not that was a good sermon preacher That can mean a lot of things that could mean I didn't say any bad words That could mean I, uh, I, I was articulate you liked the words I used That could mean I explained it well that could mean I was impassioned that day more than I am other days. That could mean that uh, you particularly like that scripture. That could mean a lot of things, and I don't mind hearing that, but what I want to hear is, preacher, I changed because of that message. That's what I want to hear, and I don't care what the change is. It doesn't matter, but the fact that the message that God put on my heart to present that day, as He spoke through me, as God spoke through me, as I presented the scripture, you changed? That's what I want to hear. That's what any preacher wants to hear. That's what most preachers are excited about. And I'd say 99.9999% of preachers are, except for Jonah. He was not excited about the change that happened. The king was. The king commanded it and said, This is good, do it. Verse, uh, verse 9, verse 8, prayers commanded, changes commanded. Verse 9, from the king, God is understood. There's an understanding here by the king of Elohim, as as they uh, have been introduced to him. The king understood that mercy is God's prerogative. It is not God's requirement. God does not have to be merciful on any of us. It is a mercy that we still breathe today. It's a mercy that we have salvation to begin with. But it, it is a mercy that he doesn't strike us down the next time we sin. It's mercy, it's mercy, it's mercy. It is always mercy, and it's his prerogative. There is no presumption on the part of the king here that God owes them anything. Even after their repentance. I mean, look at this. Repent, pray, do all these things, change. And maybe, who knows, maybe God will relent. Maybe God will show mercy. There's this admission there that even if he doesn't, We deserve it. We've gotten the message. We deserve what's coming. Maybe God will have mercy. God's patience with us is a gift. This goes for the pagan world, Ninevites. Y'all, this also goes for the All About Me church. God's patience with us as a church is a gift. If we can look, church leaders here tonight... If you can look back at the history of First Baptist Sulfur and you can look at those times where we shouldn't have done this, we did this wrong, this was bad, this was sinful, this was wrong, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have. If you can come up with some points in t- in the history, the timeline of this church like that, and if you can't look closer because I think you might find a few, cuz all churches can. I'm not just talking about y'all, I'm talking about but but I'm talking to y'all. Every one of those times if we still exist as a church after that, that's God's mercy Every time we were called to a task as a church the main task being evangelizing the lost and we didn't do it For whatever reason we chose not to take the path of obedience The fact that the church still exists after that decision to disobey is God's mercy So he has us here today even in our disobedience as individuals, as church members, as a body. He has us here today because he still has a purpose. Because maybe we did repent. We're sorry. Maybe we tried to change it, but it was too late. And so we're offered another chance. Well, we we talk about that here in just a second. Uh, God is merciful in verse 10. They repent, the verb is is turned, God repents. It's actually the same word, but in a different stem, is what they call it in Hebrew. So it means something a little different than than turn. It actually means for him, moved to pity. But if we just read it in the Hebrew, if we translated it directly, and didn't uh, translate the nuance, what verse 10 would say is, then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil, so God Turned from his evil That's actually what it says They turned from they, the evil they did And because they did God turned from the evil The calamity That's why your your Bible may translate it uh, Disaster, calamity He turned from the evil That he was about to do To deliver uh, to, to, to visit upon them They repent And God repents What's interesting here Is that it says the one thing that moved God was repentance, not the outward show. Look at it. Then God saw their actions, He saw the things they did. But I have the big, the long hyphens in my translation. I don't know if you have the long hyphens or, or commas or what. That they had turned from their evil ways. When he gets specific, he doesn't say that they had put on sackcloth. It doesn't say that they had fasted. It says that they had repented. When he saw that they had repented, God relented. The thing that moved him was their repentance. See, as Christians, as as evangelicals, as, as church people, go back to that being judgmental Christians. We've known people who have put on the outward show of church. They come, they're on the roll. They they pray when they're called on. They give. They do all the stuff. But 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 we know, man. We go. There's there is just there's something missing. What what is missing? They've got all the outward trappings, but they have none of the internal change. And yeah, that can happen. The sinner's prayer is not some incantation that automatically saves you. You can say a lot of words and it never save you. You can say the right words and it doesn't save you. You can say, I believe in Jesus and it doesn't save you. Uh, I believe it was James that covers that and says, even the demons believe and tremble at who Jesus is. We can know a lot about Jesus and never trust him for salvation. Repentance is the thing. True heart change is the thing that moves God when it comes to our salvation. And then the last thing we, we look at, that kind of a, a rhetorical question, because we don't know, when did they know they were okay? Forty days? Immediately? I I don't know. The the, the Scripture doesn't say. When did they know that they, they had done the right things? Can you imagine waiting for forty days to find out if you were going to be destroyed. And and I'm going to assume that that's what it was. That they knew on the morning of the 41st day, they were okay. That God had heard their repentance, had seen their repentance, had seen the heart change. There are Christian groups, sects, that never really know if they're saved until they die oh my gosh how horrible you, you, you can never really know because you, you you can lose your salvation you can believe all the right stuff but but somehow your salvation slipped away soon or maybe not so soon before you die there's another one other group in particular that I'm thinking of that that uh, doesn't believe you can lose your salvation but by their own philosophies must believe that you can go through life believing you're saved and not be because God never chose you. Well, I did all the right stuff, I thought I was, but nope, you weren't of the elect. So you weren't saved. So, I, you know, both of those groups live with the fear, I might be wrong. I might have lost it, or I might not ever have had it. That's the beauty of the message this morning. I believe that that when when we are saved, we come in and go out of the gate. We we are constantly secure in our salvation. The poor Ninevites they probably didn't know that they were secure in their salvation from this calamity until the sun came up the forty-first day. And uh, now it didn't stick. It was just some thirty or forty years till Nineveh, Assyria, was was back to their old ways. But we have pretty good indication they were were calm for a little while. So it stuck for a little while. True repentance. How how long does a revival have to last? This was asked in one of the books that I I was reading uh, on Jonah. How long does a revival have to last for it to be a true revival? You know, I talked about tonight the first Great Awakening in the U.S., the second Great Awakening. There have been others. There have been revivals in Europe and, and other places, uh, local revivals in the U.S. just in the last handful of years. How long does it have to last to be a true revival? Well, there's no, there's no time limit. There's no, well, it must last this many days or this many years. So what happened was a true revival in Nineveh. It was a few hundred thousand folks, Turning to God and saying we repent from what we have been and we are going to be something else because of the message we've heard. Oh my gosh, if we could get a few hundred thousand folks in Louisiana to turn to repent from what they were because of the message that they've heard, even from a monotone or worse giddy preacher excited about the judgment if God would use that message but the question is posed to us how can they hear if no one takes the message to them we won't see a single soul saved in sulfur that was a great sentence we won't see a single soul saved in sulfur boy if I had planned that I wouldn't have have done it as well unless we're willing to go and take the gospel to them Oh, we'll have a few trickle in the doors, but until we take the message, until we are willing, even if we're not happy about it like Jonah, to get out of our four walls and take the message, we're not going to see a change. I wrap up with this. I'm not the world's best at inviting people to church. What? It's not my personality. Yeah, I'm I'm not emotional, so it's... one of those things i you know, it's just doesn't come naturally for me. Today I decided, you know, and I had to I had to work myself up to it. We ate at Joe's. Little waitress, you know, she checked us out too, you know, did the the, the check. And uh, she had written on our bill, have a blessed day. Well, okay, a little little light went off. All right, not a nice day, a blessed day. That's a different it's usually an intentional usage of the word, blessed. You know, the kind of Christian ease, right? Okay, so that triggered some thoughts as I'm looking at the check and go up to pay and uh, pay and and right back here I hear invited a church. Okay, so you know we do make the transaction, and I say, any you, you know what if and this. It, what threw me, what, you know, this is, I thought I was getting, an ad, getting out of it. I, I really did. Um, because there was, uh, you know, I, I, I leaned over to sign the thing, and the waitresses swapped. My waitress moved to the side, and this other waitress came up for something, to do something, and I looked up, and it was a different person. I am like, oh, okay. and, and But then, you know, they changed back again. I said, like, okay. I said, this is your eloquent preacher. if you don't have a church you go to, we'd love to have you at First Baptist Sulphur. That was it. You know, that was the one sentence. I'm, I'm worse than Jonah. At least he used God's name, you know. Uh, and she said, where's that? I said, right down the street. Where? Right down Huntington, uh, uh, down here on the left. I was you know, I was facing this way because I was at the counter. You know. Right down here on the left. said across from Fresh Elementary. Oh, okay, what church is it? It's First Baptist. Oh, it's a Baptist church? I said, yeah, oh, okay, well, I'm Baptist. I, I, I haven't, I've been looking for a church to go to. So we'd love to have you. Great. I'll, i I'm going to come. And I don't, I don't work some Sundays. And I said, well, you know, we, I don't think she's here tonight. Uh, I said, we also have service at six o'clock tonight. And she said, oh, I don't work on Sunday nights, so I can do that. I was like, great. Well, we, you know, we'd love to have you. And I left and then I went back in a few minutes later and gave her my card. I said, website address here. This will help you. That's all I did. That's all we have to do. I mean, it really is that simple. Heavens didn't open up. No, no, no hallelujah chorus that I did it. But neither did the cr- ground crack open and swallow me in, in shame and in fear because I invited somebody to church. You know, it, it was really okay. It is that simple, folks. All we have to do is just go out and do it. I'm not bragging. It. If I did it every day, five or six times a day, I'd be bragging. This is confession time, that it took that much for me to do it and look at how what happened. It's not the first time. Uh, I joke that I've done it my, first time, my one time of the year. That's not the case. But uh, we did have a young lady that's been coming a couple of times on Sunday nights that worked the front desk at the hotel that we stayed at. The first time we came to visit Sulphur, before I even knew I was going to be the pastor, I invited her to church here. Well, she's come a few times because when she wasn't working. So it, most people will come if you invite them. Nobody, very rarely do you get cussed out, especially not by a waitress. She wants a tip. So she's not going to cuss you out. She may just politely thank you, but hey, you tried. So anyway, that, that I said I was going to end with that. It, it really is that simple. That That's a very small step, but it is a step of us not being an all about me church. Us being an all about everybody else church. And it may start something with that, that simply. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight that you, uh, you, your message is that simple. Your message of love, your message of, 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 of grace, of, of salvation, it begins with just a simple, it can begin with just a simple, we want you to come to church. We'd love to have you. God, change our minds, our hearts, to see that those simple acts can add up to great things in, in your economy. In your kingdom, Lord, if we are willing to put ourselves out there, you will bless that. Lord, don't let us be so inwardly focused that we forget the outside world, and and Lord, let us let us be so outwardly focused that the the, the inside just becomes a, a hive of of joy and celebration and salvation. And Lord, we can't wait to take more of that out to the world. God, even if our message is as minimal as Jonah's, Lord, if our message is your message, then that's all we need to do. Let us be bold to say what you would have us to say. and Let us see the world changed because of Jesus as we share him with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.